Thanks for joining the People Data for Good podcast with me, Al Adamson. Today's discussion was yet another extraordinary one. This time, I spoke with Margaret Bjornadotter. Margaret is the Associate Professor of Management Science and Statistics at the University of Maryland. She's also the co-founder and chairwoman of Pay Analytics, a firm that focuses on pay equity and ensuring organizations are making that happen. Uh, she holds a PhD in operations research from MIT and also has a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical and Industrial Engineering. Uh, her research is a guide to what is working to drive pay analytics. Uh, she is featured article in the Harvard Business Review uh, that came out last month in January of 2022. And she also authored another study, Why Companies' Attempts to Close the Gender Pay Graph Often Fail, and that was released in January of 2019. Today's focus is going to be on using people analytics to build a more equitable workplace. Again, it's a fascinating discussion, and she is very forward with both the limitations of data and the use of AI, but also remains very hopeful on how we can apply it. So without further ado, Here's my discussion with Margaret Bjornadotter. Hi, welcome. Thanks for being here today. I'm here with Margaret Bjornadotter. Margaret, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How did I do on the pronunciation? You give me a B or... <laughs> Maybe a passing grade, yes. Bjornadotter. <laughs> <laughs> Bjornadotter, yes. Yeah, I'm going to work on my Icelandic pronunciation. Well, Margaret, hey, thank you for being here. If you would introduce yourself, because I'm already a huge fan, but I want others to hear about you and your story. Sure. Yeah. No. So, yeah, Margaret Bjarnadottir from Iceland, like you said. Um, so I am an associate professor at the University of Maryland in the business school, where my focus has been on data-driven and data-informed decision-making. Um, so I've been working two decades in machine learning. Uh, and I'm also the founder of Pay Analytics, uh, a pay equity software solution that supports uh, companies in reaching pay equity and maintaining it. Um, so that's like the tagline of who I am. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, depth to that because I want to call something out because you're associate professor of management science and statistics. Yeah. And I love statistics for somewhat obvious reasons. And your narrative, as I read your HBR articles, not only the one uh, last month, which we'll get to in a little bit, but the one back in 2019 on pay equity and the challenges uh, with that. But just to start off, you know, we'll get into the statistics and all that, but what is your reasoning for getting into this field? I mean, you grew up in Iceland, yeah? And, you know, how did you get here? Yeah. No, I, I think, like so many things in life, it's all about, you know, it's all a little bit of coincidences, right? So it so happened that, um, I mean, I guess it's now six, seven years back, I was chatting with a COO that was responsible for the HR functionality within his organization. Um, and he was complaining that they had an 8% equity pay gap. So meaning after accounting for the responsibilities, the skills, education, you know, the normal standard stuff that we account for when we study pay equity, they had an 8% pay gap. Um, and the problem was, and the reason he was complaining to me, was that they had also had an 8% pay gap a year earlier. So then the whole management team was going to be very mindful of this pay gap in all of their decision-making. So whether that was hiring or promotion, um, even ad hoc adjustments. So everybody was super mindful for a year, but then they measured again and it was still 8%. So then it became very clear that you don't fix these pay equity issues with good intentions alone. You need some quantitative tools to support you on that journey. And then with all the resources uh, he had, so this was a financial institu institution, he could hire McKinsey or, or, you know, Boston Consulting Group or whoever he wanted, uh, but nobody could actually tell him who should get a raise and how large should those raises be and how should things be prioritized in order to close the pay gap. 
And to me, because you talked about my background in, you know, management science and statistics, it sounded fabulous, right? As a decision problem, I mean, not the 8% pay gap. So when you think about it, we have all the data of everybody within the organization, right? And then um, we need to make these decisions, you know, who should get a raise and how large should they be, uh, while incorporating the constraints of the organization, so, you know, I was like, this sounds like fabulous research. So that's how this got started. So I took this on as a research project and then we solved the problem and developed our algorithms and been kind of at it ever since, really. Wow. I, so it's obviously, and you alluded to this, yeah, when we talk about pay equity and the gender pay gap and the gap in other dimensions of the workforce, you know, minority groups and, and so forth, it is a very complex problem. And I have seen many a leader, many an analyst kind of throw up their arms and say, well, it's too messy. As soon as I do something, there's going to be potential legal repercussions and at the end of the day, many have been paralyzed. Thus, they have you know, done very little or they've done nothing at all. And obviously, there's risks now because doing nothing or doing too little is a decision in and of itself. So uh, you know, we'll go back to your history in a second, but just going off of, of this theme, what do you advocate if an organization is going to try and you know, do better at pay equity? You know, what are some of the maybe salient uh, points that they have to consider? So, I, I mean, I think the biggest step is just the first step and get started. At the end of the day, um, often when we talk to and when I talk to organization, they always are trying to get the perfect data. But, you know, often the HR systems are half broken or the comp system doesn't talk to the HR system, etc., but still, we can always get started, and then we work our way to more sophistication. So we have to start somewhere, and it's about getting started. Because I think as much as we want kind of pay equity to be a you know, one-time fix, just get it right and be done with it, it really is an ongoing process. So we have to think about starting, you know, closing those equity pay gaps, obviously, but then thinking about incorporating the thought of pay equity into the compensation processes so that we don't find ourselves repeatedly with pay equity issues that we have to fix. So I think, okay. uh, now I don't even remember what your question was, but <laughs> the, well, the well, first step well, is always just to get started somewhere. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, in that regard, just so you know, I, I took some notes <laughs> <laughs> you know, leading into our discussion here. And one of the things that I was really taken with uh, was the fact that there is room in the raise allocation process to address this problem because if you take uh, kind of just a cost perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you can it can it might be uh, undoable or not might not be doable rather um, financially. And, you know, how do we gradually move towards a better, you know, state? So, you know, my question, you know, again, if an organization is going to get started, you know, where are the starting points? You know, what are some of the things that you would advocate, consider? And actually, I'm going to throw on a question that even precedes that one. Don't worry, I'll, I'll <laughs> note all these questions. Is like, who should be deciding this in the first place? Because you know, when you talk about pay equity, you know, you have managers making decisions, you have policies and procedures, you have potentially legal uh, repercussions. So legal arguably should be in the room. So who should be considering making this change? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally what your question is about is who owns the process, right? And what you are getting at is that there are so many stakeholders that affect this process. So I would say who should start and, and how to get started. So I would say kind of building on what I've seen, you know, with this organization is often starts within the comp department. So because um, they own the comp process, um, they are then responsible. I would say how fast they get to zero sometimes depend, depends on, you know, the support that they get. So, you know, one 
kind of organization with over 100,000 employees. I mean, there was an agenda and a directive from the board that said, we want to eradicate the pay equity in six months. So obviously, if you make that decision at a multinational organization, you need a, a budget for it. So you can't, you don't close pay gaps unless you have a budget and you need a little bit of budget. Um, because if I get to, if I take one step back and I know I'm rambling a little bit, but if I take one step back and think about an organization that has never thought about pay equity, but they have sometimes and often what I call legacy pay gaps, right? People have been making decisions over maybe years or decades and ended up in a place where there is a lot of inequity. So then we need, yes, you will need a budget to fix that, right? So because um, typically we don't lower salaries. I have yet to meet a CEO that is interested in, you know, uh, lowering salaries. I also often, because I get asked that question, because cost is important and budgets are important. And, you know, so especially when I do, um, when I talk to academics, <laughs> you know, people not practicing pay equity, they are like, oh, but can't you just lower salaries? I'm like, no, that does not work in the real world. But I have had one CEO ask me whether I could tell him whom to fire. Um, and I think he was joking, <laughs> but uh, but he became a client, and he has not fired anyone based on my um, our solution. But um, so where was I going with this? So I think yeah, if you have these legacy pay gaps, it's about um, about uh, fixing them. We need a little bit of budget, uh, and then as an ongoing process, we need also budget maybe annually. Often organizations kind of take it together with their merit reviews. So they do a little bit of adjustments with their merit raises. But then I think the important part of your question is then who is, is responsible, right? And there, I think there's a huge educational piece because we cannot just keep pay equity within the comp department. We have to educate our business partners, meaning the managers, meaning the HR, even the recruiters that might be uh, working for us. We need to educate them about we are a firm or an organization that champions pay equity. Here is how we measure it. This is why, you know, we have... Uh, suggested equitable pay for your recruits right um, and then you can monitor it as well so you can for example think about you know if we care about pay equity and want to champion it you monitor your recruiting process and you see you know are you moving in different directions from these suggested equitable starting salaries by based on demographics for example whether that's gender or race or minorities or even age right so um yeah. Yeah, so I think in order to successfully implement pay equity, it has to be broadly owned, uh, and we need to spend the time educating the rest of the business for sure. Well, I'm, I'm drawing out some key points here, and I'm also thinking about your, your articles. And for those who um, are listening, you can find them in the notes uh, below or the comments, rather, um, or description. I'll make sure that those links are included. Um, but I want to get back to a topic that most of our listeners are very interested in, somewhat obviously, is the data and analytics and, and AI. And your recent article of last month um, in HBR uh, spoke very eloquently. As I shared with you on the outset, I was like, yes, yes, this is something that needs to be more broadly communicated and, and understood, that there are risks in data and analytics and, and AI. So without going you know, too deep into that, can you speak to what your concerns are and you know, the opportunities that analytics and AI provide? Yeah, yeah. so yeah, maybe I can start to say, I'm a huge believer, by the way, in machine learning and AI. So <laughs> that's, that's what I've done, done for a living for two decades. So, uh, but we need to do a couple of things to do it right. And we need to think about it and differently when we are applying machine learning and AI in human sensitive processes, so whether that's HR or healthcare or uh, criminal justice system, etc. And there are even questions, you know, whether AI even has a place in some of these uh, scenarios. But setting that aside, um, you know, what do, how do we need to think about this? So I think at the core, when we think about machine learning and AI, it's about data, right? 
And then we think, okay, we need some data to help this algorithm, whether, whether they are helping, you know, our hiring or recruiting or identifying, you know, managerial potential, etc. Um, we have to just keep in mind that our data reflects the past. And I think, as we all know, we are building towards a different future. So anytime we build a machine learning algorithm on data that reflects the past, well, then that algorithm is going to suggest solutions that are similar to the past or how we define success in the past and based on factors that we measured in the past, which in themselves might be very biased. So we need to be very mindful that, A, you know, the data does not represent the equitable workplaces that we want to build. And um, so that's one. And B, that in the past we might have been measuring factors that even um, don't are not good proxies for what we're trying to measure. Um, so, um, so that's one thing. So thinking about that, um, we also need to think about, uh, you know, the data might be biased. So the typical example that we take is performance. <laughs> performance, you know, metrics, right? They historically have not been very well performed. I mean, there are exceptions to that as well. Um, but, you know, if we are then using that to feed into some kind of identifying talent, uh, that can be biased. Um, so we, all of that to say, we have to be very mindful about data, the proxies that are in the data, right? I think one of the examples that I mentioned in that article is that sometimes we use grade point average as some kind of proxy for, you know, uh, talent or or um, skills or um, potential, not realizing that our grade point average might be reflective of whether or not we had to work alongside school to be able to afford our books, right? So then if we don't understand that, well, then we have just biased our algorithm against those from a lower socioeconomic status, which just goes against everything uh, that we want. So that's, I think, the big the big thing is the data. We have to get the data right. And then we have to question, what is it that is not in the data? What are the key factors for managerial potential that we have no quantifiable measures for? And then thinking about it prior, how are we going to incorporate that into our decision making? Right. So, so that together, um, the algorithm and our human decision making can work better. So we just have to be very mindful uh, and don't think about machine learning as some kind of magic wand that will make ever the world unbiased because it's the opposite. It can really, and you know, amplify current biases and make them worse if you're not careful. Margaret, I love you. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, what you just shared is so important in so many ways. And I think... Uh, it is under understood, uh, particularly uh, among those who are making decisions, but really everyone, yeah. uh, because it's like, as an individual worker, I'm generating data. How's that data being used? If I'm answering a survey, you know, how's that data being used? If I'm doing a job application or doing a pre-employment assessment or something, you know, how's that being used? What biases are, are present or not? And I'm gonna amplify your point around if we take historical data and we look at it, we tighten up the relationships among the metrics and we get a high R squared and all this you know, stuff that's very exciting from a statistical standpoint. But what it does is perpetuates, to your point, history. And is that what we want to do? And something that you drew up or, or highlighted is this pursuit uh, during the recruiting process of cultural fit and how that might be counterproductive to elevating a more diverse and inclusive workforce. Can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So this comes from, um, so I, I mean, so I have been watching with great attention the HR space, kind of the startup scene. It's both because I've been a part of it, but also just out of fascination, right? And I have seen all of these claims that uh, that machine learning can be, you know, measure my culture fit, <laughs> my grit or teamwork, etc. And I will just, 
allow myself to question that um, a video feed of me saying, hi, my name is Margaret Bjarnadóttir and, you know, I'm an associate professor, that anyone, including AI in the cloud, can measure how well I work in teams based on my introduction on a video. So I think, uh, and there's a great article, I believe it was a German um, station uh, or a, at least a news outlet, that studied one of these, sorry for laughing, um, studied yeah. one of these uh, tech startups that had real clients. Their promise was to make the recruiting process more efficient <clears throat> through, you know, understanding behavioral um, patterns of people from video analyzing, analyzing video, uh, including, you know, tone of voice, you know, hand expressions. So I know our listeners are listening, but I talk a lot with my hands. So I don't know if that would work in favor or against me in that video analysis. But what they found was this behavioral score that was developed by AI was altered. The score was altered based on whether you would wear glasses or you put a scarf uh, on your head. So I would just question... We are not there yet with kind of AI and machine learning being able to, A, do this accurately enough um, so that it's actually useful. Um, and now probably, hopefully someone will prove me wrong and then I'm happy to test it out. But as an example, I was involved, I know I'm going off on a tangent, so you just bring me back, but off on a tangent, um, I was involved, we were looking at, um, so I do a lot of work in healthcare, um, and we were looking at health coaching. So we had uh, information. So this was basically helping um, patients, you know, take better care of themselves, monitor the sim symptoms. And part of that was health coaching. So we did deploy a lot of this uh, video analysis to, you know, try to understand, okay, is the client happy talking to his coach, etc. And we found that the results was just not, you know, satisfactory. That the technology that we use to kind of automatically detect this, yeah, we got some results, but they didn't feel robust enough. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would, A, you know, maybe <laughs> question some of these claims that are made out there that we can detect all of these things based on surveys or um, or video. But then also, I think my point to the paper, so I'll get to your question now. So the point we were making uh, in the paper was that that of cultural fit, right? So there's this um, thought that you want to hire people that fit your internal culture. But just by doing that, you might be amplifying a very narrow cultural fit, right? So think about, you know, you take your past data on your past employees that you thought were a good fit, right? And you look at them and say, oh, okay, these are the kind of the key characteristics. So then for your new hires, you try to, you know, hire someone like them. Well, next time in your next hiring circle, guess what? Your pool of employees are now even more narrowly defined in terms of their characteristics. So the culture fit has even come in even more narrow. So, and that can be amplified year over year over year. So I think that was the um, kind of the example that we took for how machine learning can amplify certain things. So um, the example that you often take outside of the HR is that of algorithmic policing. So, mm. you know, you you have some, you think about a map of your city and where crime happens. So what do you do? Well, if you use algorithms, you dispatch the police to where you think crime will happen. Well, guess where most crime will be detected? Well, it's where the police is, right? So you can think about next round, you have amplified the detected crime in those areas and then the circle continues. So there's actually a huge push now uh, in the CS space of computer science of actually stopping algorithmic policies because of many of these things. So, um, yeah. On that, on that point, um, I'm proud to say that where I live here in Santa Cruz was one of the first cities in the United States to stop um, predictive policing. Yeah. So uh, under Andy Mills' leadership, the chief of police, the former chief of police uh, here in, in Santa Cruz, you actually highlight um, something that... Uh, human in the loop analytics. So we have machine learning and AI doing this work out might pop a recommendation to just take that recommendation forward without 
consideration of the potential biases and risks in the application obviously carries risks and is not recommended, at least in, in my view. Can you speak to more about what human-in-the-loop analytics looks like to you if practiced well? Yeah, so I think, I mean, it's one of those buzzwords, right? <laughs> then it has many definitions. But it means that at the end of the day, the computer is not um, making the decisions. Um, in my mind, it also carries a notion of transparency. So when you think about AI and machine learning, you can think about anything from simple models that kind of look like just decision trees where you can really understand why the algorithm gets to a certain decision, right? Um, versus, you know, some black box deep learning models that just spit out a number or yes or a no, right? Um, and for effective human-in-the-loop analytics or AI, we need that level of transparency. So the human needs to understand why is the computer making that recommendation and then we need to bring in you know what are the factors that um, you know fall outside of those of the computer and then together um, so in my mind human in the loop analytics especially in the HR space at best the algorithm might just be one of those data points in number of data points that you're considering when you're making your decision well for me that means that somebody is qualified to make those distinctions and call them out and recommend better ways forward. And arguably, that's someone with a PhD in operation research from MIT. So, <laughs> but what I'm getting at, um, <laughs> that's Margaret, by the way. Um, the, uh, but what I'm getting at is, is this, is that you know, what uh, is the profile of the individual who can or should be leading this effort within organizations? Because many say, oh, we're not there yet. Oh, I understand that we need to do that, but who's going to do that? And then do they have the requisite um, equity, if you will, relationship equity inside the organization to slow down a process or adjust a process. So for me, this lands on governance, you know, going back to our first who, then what, you know, you know, who should actually be doing this. It has to be beyond comp. But more specifically, do you see, and this is certainly going to be a leading question, the role of a people analytics leader or someone like that who understands analytics and the inherent risk within it can and should they be guiding the discussion if not leading it? Yeah, I think there's also, like all good questions, the answer is it depends. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm, I'm currently teaching, you know, machine learning uh, classes. And I always tell them if my answer starts it, <laughs> with it depends, then it was a good question. So it depends on the organization, right? So you can think about, you know, smaller organizations, you know, their HR team might be three people. Right. Um, for organizations that are conducting, you know, analytics within their HR departments at a large scale, yes, there should be an analytics leader with uh, detailed understanding. But um, but I had another thought before I went on a tangent. Your question was, oh, do we need a people analytics person? I also think another um, thing is, you know, what are we talking about in terms of the analytics? So when you think about the organization and, you know, when I speak to academics, this is often how I start this, talking about, you know, why are the analytics in HR so different, right? Because if you think about the analytics or, you know, revolution within an organization, we've been optimizing everything in the finance department and the, you know, in the ops department for a very long time, right? But in the, for, the HR was always there in a corner with kind of standardized reports, maybe some fancy Excel sheets if they were lucky. Um, and why was that? It's because the decisions there are so fundamentally different, right? Nobody cares about discrimination if we are trying to determine which brand of ketchup to put on sale, honestly, <laughs> right? Yep. We, all we care about then is just maximizing our profit or our bottom line. So we need different types of analytics. So... Um, so do, back to your question, do you need a people analytics person? It depends on how you're starting and where you're coming from. So 
you know, are you going to adopt all of these different algorithmic tools across your recruiting pipeline? Or are you starting out simply with, you know, studying your own organization, understanding um, your pay equity, understanding your diversity, inclusion, right? Are you starting with simply measuring, you know, out of the candidates that you interviewed, how diverse were they? You don't mm. need a PhD in operation research from any institution to take that information and think critically about it. So I don't mm. think you need to start with a, you know, the head of people analytics, uh, you know, running the shop. But I, I think you need to start with the will to ask the hard questions and then go from there. So, yeah. um, and often, yeah, you don't need analyt strong analytical skills, but you need to be, you know, Ask the hard questions of your data. And that requires creating the space to ask those questions. And it actually requires, correct me if I'm wrong, knowing what questions to ask. And in turn, you know, hopefully taking appropriate action. So focusing on small companies for or even mid-sized companies, many of which do not have a people analytics leader and many people analytics leaders as we know now have io psychology backgrounds they might have quantitative backgrounds however they might also be you know financial professionals who came over into hr and have the essential quant experience but they might not have the deep statistical you know algorithmic experience so for again small and mid-sized companies when do you think they can or should be asking these tough questions and then how do they manage that in the absence of someone who you know with the statistical chops to help i mean i think you should ask them for day one right in my mind right at the end of the day what kind of organization are you building up and if you're not asking the hard questions you know, <laughs> well, you know, to me, but I mean, obviously I'm biased. I live and breathe in this space. Um, so, but I mean, I can speak about it because, you know, I've been involved in starting my own company. We have been mindful about this from day one. So, you know, with five employees, we were asking, how can we broaden up our uh, employment group, right? How can we make mm -hmm. sure that we attract, for example, both young and old talent, for example, um, so, as you mentioned in the beginning, I come from Iceland, so we are quite homogeneous <laughs> people. Uh, so we have different um, we have different challenges there. So, for example, from the beginning, the official language of the company is English. So in Iceland, it's not the color of your skin is the inclusion criteria or the where the discrimination happens is more along the lines you speak perfect Icelandic. And if you don't, that's when you run into where the, the true discrimination is, at least antidotally. So we have been very mindful of that from the start, you know, starting from five. So I think we should always be asking these questions. And then I think what we have seen in the past, you know, five, six years is that now there are, you have the tools um, I happen to represent one of them, but there are others out there, obviously, that can help you with all of this. So they can monitor your pay equity. They can monitor your diversity inclusion. You can look at how you're performing quarter over quarter, year over year. So there's a lot of tools now that make this easy for, you know, I think our smallest client is 30 employees. So that gives you an idea. And the largest is 150,000. So I think wow. there's no... There's no scale needed. There's no right scale. But it's about, I know I'm a little bit optimistic, but that's my nature. It's about doing the right thing. So I know that sounds very naive, but um, but at the, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, what kind of workplace and organization do you want to build? And the tools are out there if you uh, to support you in doing so. Well, I... I... I celebrate your optimism and I don't think it's naive at all. In fact, I think it's conscious, um, proactive intentionality. And I probably could have done that much more eloquently, but it's being aware of the problem and going after and advocating for something better than exists today. Um, so it's not naive. It comes from a, you know, a, a knowledgeable place. And, you know, with that in mind, one of the things that I got 
of the many things that I got excited about when reading your work and thinking about my own experience as an analyst and thinking about all the people and leaders that I've had the pleasure of working with over the years is this idea that uh, we have these transactional systems that are generating data and we're doing analyses on data that wasn't necessarily created for analytical purposes. And then oftentimes we put this into an analytical engine and we try and infer some some things and then make decisions, you know, all fine and good, all well-intentioned. Um, however, having a system that actually analyzes the analytical tools and algorithms themselves is something that I've longed hoped for and seen as imminent. And that's something, correct me if I'm wrong, that you do that you actually analyze some of these um, algorithms that are out there and creating this uh, and being calling out the algorithmic bias and understanding and highlighting the data that's absent that could help and so forth. So can you speak on the need to have this ongoing uh, investigation or you know, critical look at the algorithms themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest danger is you just adopt a tool and assume it works well. So I think any independent of what the tool is, you need to think about uh, and monitor what it is doing in real time. And um, to your point, what happens is that you know if you if you develop these tools, you know maybe it's a software company that develops it in house builds it on their own data, and then they transport it to you. Different population, different biases, obviously going to be different performance. So it's about asking the hard questions um, of the um, of these tools. I don't think it made it into the HBR article, but there's a associated white paper that we wrote that actually provides checklists of kind of what are the questions that you should ask of your software vendors, right? So, for example, if, if, if you're adopting a tool into your hiring <clears throat> pipeline, you know, how is it being monitored in real time? Uh, if you have an algorithm that is kind of poking people on LinkedIn, right? You can have that, right? So you, if you're trying to recruit someone, obviously you advertise, but then you ping people, right? So, and then, you know, how diverse was the population that this algorithm pinged, right? So if it's about, you know, just if it's just about click-through rates, right, then you might not get the results that you want. Um, I know I'm talking in circles, but another thing I think related to monitoring these algorithms in real time and, you know, detecting bias before they become a problem is also about how you incentivize the algorithms, right? So if you buy a tool and you're just paying for the number of applicants that come directly from LinkedIn, right? Then that's what you will get. You will get a number of applicants for LinkedIn. If you pay for diverse applicants for LinkedIn, well, now you have just incentivized the algorithm that you bought to go and try to find you diverse click-throughs from LinkedIn. So it's also about changing how we pay for these tools that we are using in the recruiting pipeline. So it's not just about, you know, detecting the bias, but it's, it's about incentives. So if you think about machine learning is nothing <laughs> except incentives, right? So you have a loss function in there, which means um, to those who don't live and breathe it every day. So there's an objective, right? And then all the algorithm tries to do is to optimize that objective. And if in that objective, there's no notion of diversity or fairness, well, then that's not something that the algorithm is going to deliver on. So we need to also change the incentives functions for these HR tools so that, you know, they start broadening out, perhaps. And correct me if I'm wrong. With that uh, as a framing, really clarifying and being accurate on the objective is something that is required as well. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a very fair statement. Yeah. yeah. So if you and, buy a tool that says, oh, we will deliver you thousand potential 
applicant for X amount of dollars, then that's exactly what you get, right? If you push back and say, I will pay you <laughs> 250 from each of these categories, I mean, that's a very different ask, right? Mm -hmm. So then, right. you know, we also, so I think there's a lot of responsibility on us that develop machine learning and AI. I think it's also about us in the HR, so I, I count myself in both, right? It's also um, on us, kind of the HR, to be and ask the hard questions of these vendors, you know, are you really delivering something that will improve my workplace, not just make things more efficient? Yeah, and again, I, by nature, am an optimist. I am not a cynic, but I will call out things that I have seen enough times to know that it's part of reality. HR leaders did not grow up with quantitative degrees, and they have not, by and large, uh, worked in HR technology, let alone analytics. So asking these tough questions oftentimes is, is out of their comfort zone or they just don't have that in their field of awareness. And then it comes back to, again, in my narrative, again, I'm biased by my own experience and desires in this front, is that there is someone on the team, people analytics leader, for example, who has the quant background, who knows what questions to ask, who knows where to push back. So in the ideal future state, and I'm getting maybe medium to large companies in this question, do you believe there is a role for someone like that to be in not only the analytical process downstream, but in their software selection and design process upfront? What are your thoughts there? I mean, I would say, yeah, absolutely. I also, maybe because, <laughs> maybe this is too optimist speaking to each other, but I think there's also awakening happening. I think the software tools three years down the line are going to be very different from what they are today and even what they were five years ago, right? So if you think about, you know, machine learning, <laughs> people weren't talking about algorithmic fairness 15 years ago. Um, kind of the field, if you had been watching kind of the field, the, from 2010-ish is when people woke up with like, whoops, <laughs> there is something called algorithmic fairness and machine learning bias and we need to actually attack it, right? So I think mm -hmm. there has been a lot of work done um, over in computer science, theoretical and practical. Um, and I think it will make its way very soon uh into the whole HR analytics pipeline, because otherwise you're not going to be competitive, honestly, you know, in a couple of years, because it's also about education. So when I think about what I was teaching in 10, you know, 2010, I wasn't talking about machine learning <laughs> bias to my students to now, that's what we start with, right? So there is also an education piece. And I think, um, you know, many of the things that now, we, you know, we're talking about, we have to ask the hard questions, you know, some of the things that we can do is to build dashboards that monitor these algorithms in real time. What are they delivering and what is the impact on our organization? I mean, I, thinking about the future, that's going to be baked in, I would say, very, very soon. Um, because if you're not already doing it, you're starting to fall behind. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, agreed. And yeah, I'm, there's like 18 different directions I'd like to take this conversation. And I know we, we have limited time today, but I'm, we're going to have to talk again, certainly. And uh, I want to ask you some questions about your history and motivations before we wrap as well. But one of the things that um, I think is really important for listeners to uh, get your perspective on is this. And you alluded to it earlier because you talk about algorithmic fairness and all that. But the data itself. So many companies, well, we have an analytic strategy, we have uh, you know, an AI strategy, and you know, it's all about the math, it's all about the tools, it's all about, but being aware of the data that we have and its shortcomings and being aware of the data that is potentially, uh, we have the ability to create that could help shed insight and to make better decisions. So the, you wrote, in uh, the last article, data isn't neutral. So can you speak to my question insofar as there's room to create new data or acquire new data to help with a an algorithm downstream and help improve? Or 
on the other side, you know, some data might be inappropriate. And, you know, that might lead into this notion that data isn't neutral. What are your thoughts there? <laughs> Apparently, there's a good article. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. What, when, when in the article was I talking about data wasn't neutral? <laughs> like my head, my, my head was spinning. Okay, what, what was my actual thought there? Yeah. I don't know, you, 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 you don't talk in circles. You, you're talking in micro loops that go upward, okay? So it's, it's all good. Um, it's upward. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, no, data isn't neutral, right? Because it reflects our past and our past decisions, like at the core, our data, our internal data. So let's say we are creating our own algorithm or, you know, feeding our data into some tool for internal decision making. Our data, our data reflects the past and we know that our past is biased. So anytime we use data that reflects the past, that bias comes with it. Um, and there's typically no magic bullet that can take your data and just de-bias it. Um, so, for many reasons. So then, uh, but there, I mean, there are tricks that we can uh, play, certainly. So if we think about the analytical pipeline, it goes from, uh, you know, the data, and then we create a model, we test the model, and then we deploy it. And at each stage, we can do things, right? So at at the data level, we can be mindful, right? So if we know that performance data in the past was biased, well, let's not use it. Um, then at the modeling stage, you know, if we think that bias, sorry, performance is super important for our organizations, but then, we, but we know that they were biased, well, okay, maybe we can inflate the scores for those populations that it was biased against. That's one way to kind of fix the data. Um, we can be mindful of things at the modeling stage. And then I think more importantly, when we build, and let's go into this assumption that we are building something ourselves internally on our internal data, is just to take a look at the model performance and break it down by the groups that we care about. Because at the end of the day, that will tell you whether things are okay or not. Um, and then I'm not just saying, so you mentioned <laughs> early on R squared, right? <laughs> so one of the things I've been telling my students over the past two weeks is that, you know, if I tell you I have a R squared of, you know, 70%, what does that tell you? And my argument is always, well, it tells you very little, right? <laughs> because this, this abstract uh, notion of, you know, how well our model fits the data, but that's it, right? It doesn't tell you anything about the impact on the organization, and that's what we need to um, monitor. So we can do that. We can build dashboards that simply show, okay, if we do this in the context of identifying talent for managerial training programs, for example, well, we can see out of everybody, you know, broken down by the groups that we care about, how many got identified. And if there's a group that goes unidentified, we have a problem. If we are identifying equally proportionally from each group, we might not have a problem, right? So it's really just understanding, um, you know, how the algorithm is impacting the organization at the end of the day. Um, and that takes someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and yeah, again, sure. I just want to, I just emphasize, I just want to emphasize that point that many, you know, they're spending millions of dollars on these, yeah, HR systems and ERP systems, and they're expecting these insights and they're falling short. Yeah. And I think there's a underappreciation for the actual nature of the work and who is most qualified to do that work well. And of course, there are room for consultancies, uh, other solution providers, and, and so forth. And that's you know a whole other discussion. But there's a few things that I I want to capture as we you know start to wrap up here. And because I love your energy and I love what you're doing. I mean, I, I literally I already profess my love for you. And I want to What's your motivation? I mean, why did you get into all this? This is not easy work. It's messy work. It's as we shared at the outset, it's complex. But I guess that's the nature of someone who you know, uses you know, quantitative analysis to solve complex problems. But what's your motivation? Why did you get into this? I mean, a couple of things, right? I think I've always been fascinated by data, right? And what it can tell you. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit of a data nerd, 
to start with. So, you know, for me... Nothing in your resume said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to me, data is fascinating, right? So that was absolutely... And then, so I come, if I, I come from a background, so I have my doctorate, right? I got my, you know, became a professor. And the metric that you're measured on when you're a professor are the number of high-quality publications that you get out. Right, and one would argue that you can have a lot of high quality publications and have zero impact uh, on anything right and i th- and my motivation really is I wanted to change things for the better <laughs> so um so that's why kind of i mean obviously first i i do started this because it was a fascinating problem and from a research perspective. But then we grew, to grow it to develop a solution to help organization was really just an opportunity to impact how things are done, to do them right, and then, you know, correct things for groups that don't always have a voice, right? And I think, I know I'm, I'm going to go on another tangent, but um, I think pay equity and equity within workplaces in general, the burden shouldn't be put on the employee to go after, you know, for me as an employee, I shouldn't have to fight for fair pay. I should be able to go and show up to work knowing that I'm being fairly compensated. So it's also to help organizations achieve that, but not for the... (laughs) For the organization per se, but for the employees that, you know, might not otherwise have gotten fairly compensated. Um, because I think every, any time, and we see this when we review legislation, pay equity legislation around the world, we can put them in a couple of buckets. And there are a couple of countries where the kind of the burden of seeking fair pay has been put on the employee. And we are just seeing it doesn't have the same impact as when the burden is put on the employer. So, you know, we are all different, <laughs> right? We all, you know, and talking about pay is difficult, right? For many, it's emotional even, you know, myself included. Um, so then, you know, having to go to someone and, you know, argue that you're not being treated fairly. I mean, this is not an easy conversation to have. So if, I can do my little thing to make that easier to ensure fairness. That's something that drives me in general. Maybe that's my Icelandic upbringing. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful call out, beautiful mission, and uh, I certainly celebrate it. And uh, you're doing awesome work, both in the written form and in building your solutions. So I congratulate you on both counts. So keep keep it up. Thank you. Uh, there's a uh, you mentioned it, and this is going to be one of my kind of final, uh, like, technical questions, if you will. But when Barack Obama entered office, his first legislation that he signed, as you know, was the Lilly Ledbetter Act. And those uh, laws in California and Massachusetts in particular have led the way, uh, arguably, here in the United States. Um, and we can talk about all the intricacies of that. But... Um, Instead, I just want to talk about the fact, particularly with the great resignation or whatever you want to call it, um, that people, particularly women, are exiting um, the workforce. And part of the reason inherent, as we all know, is because they don't feel that they're being treated fairly. And comp arguably plays a a critical role in that. So I've seen many companies, uh, leaders, uh, by their actions, say, I am not going to address this because I don't have to. There's no external pressure on me to do this. However, more progressive companies who want to attract and retain key talent, particularly women, are proactively looking at this problem and they're solving it consciously in a sustained, serious way. So can you just speak to that real quick as we start to wrap up? Organizations, correct me if I'm wrong, leadership specifically, needs to make a decision that this is, in fact, a priority for them and their organizations. Otherwise, it's not going to get done. Is, is that a fair statement? Are you speaking to pay equity in particular? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So let me, 
I might take a little bit, five minutes to answer your question. Um, So um, there has been, I would say, things are moving quite fast in pay equity. So when I started this, you know, five, six, seven years ago, (laughs) time flies. Um, It used to be that uh, organizations could kind of advertise just having a equal pay certification kind of branded them as being champions of equality, etc. That has changed really fast. Um, and I would say, you know, three years ago, we saw these public announcements, um, you know, of companies saying they have 0% equal pay gaps. Uh, we saw, I think it was uh, Audi that took out an advertisement during the Super Bowl just to talk about their gender equality about four or five years ago, right? So um, it used to be that organizations that were doing this right were, you know, kind of, that was a unique thing. I think increasingly, if you're not doing this, you're falling behind. So, and you're not going to... um, So, so let me, rather than making adjustments, so this is my academic, I, I can't make statements that I can't back by research. So let, so let me give you this antidote. So um, this fall, I was at a conference, uh, comp conference, and every single conversation, independent of whether we were talking about, about pay equity or, you know, bonuses or, you know, salary packages or, you know, anything, all conversations in any session of that conference ended up talking about one aspect or another, how hard it is to recruit talent. All of them. All of them are saying, but how does this affect recruitment? How does this affect, you know, re, uh, affect recruitment, etc.? And I think pay equity is one of these things that you have to be able to signal to your workforce that you are an equitable workplace that people find attractive. So pay equity has become a must-have. It's not. It's no longer a nice-to-have um, for a couple of reasons. So in some places, it's literally there's legislation that is enforcing you uh, to take this on and tackle this. And in other places, uh, unless you want a revolving door for your employees, you have to do this in order to be able to send your employees a clear signal that they're being treated fairly. And studies show that, that pay equity is correlated with, you know, employee satisfaction and retention and all of these things. So if I would be surprised if there is an organization that is not thinking about this. Um, But in this context, a very interesting conversation that's being had all around is, because you mentioned the pandemic and its effect, uh, one of it has been on remote work. And one thing that we haven't tackled fully is, does that affect compensation? That if you used to sit in an office somewhere, you know, and deliver a job, but now you've been doing it out of your home and you're doing an equally good job, you know, and that's a, you know, a question that people are starting to answer and address. And I think we will see a lot of different changes and updates in pay policy around uh, remote work because you have to answer this. (laughs) (laughs) This is happening. Well, yeah, Margaret, as we wrap here, I just, again, want to emphasize how much I appreciate you, your work, and yeah, just, you know, keep it up. Um, You are based here in the States, uh, in the D.C., Baltimore area, is that right? Yep, yep. So I'm at the University of Maryland, and then I live in D.C. All right. Well, enjoy it back there. Stay warm. Uh, we're here in February of, of 2020. I know you, it's been chilly back there recently, but uh, how can people learn more about you and pay analytics? Um, I, have, I have a LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> so I can be found there. Uh, pay analytics is payanalytics.com. Um, and I'm really bad at self-promotion. So, but I do have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, and then uh, my academic profile is on uh, University of Maryland. So if people um, are interested in collaborating on research projects, I would also love to hear from them uh, in the HR space and how, how we can make it more fair and how we can use machine learning for good. So, yeah. All right. 
Well, thank you yet again. Uh, you be well, and hopefully we'll be able to get together in person uh, before too long. So look forward to that. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, Margaret. You be well. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening today. To learn more about the People Analytics and Future of Work community, the People Data for Good movement, and to contribute to the ongoing production of podcasts and shows that enable you to stay at the forefront of people analytics, workforce planning, diversity, equity, and inclusion, employee experience, and other themes that are affecting the future of work, then please visit pathal.net. Again, thanks for being here and to making great things happen.